0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Ben Goliver. What's up, man?
1: Not too much, Andrew. I got to credit you right off the top because you were insistent. You said, patience, trust the process, don't write them off. And what did we have on Sunday but the biggest game of the Cleveland Cavaliers season? Game seven, the two best words in sports, win or go home. (laughs) leave it all out there on the court who is going to step up and do it and you insisted Andrew that we not give up on Rodney Hood and what's he going to be able to give Cleveland and wouldn't you know it in this moment all eyes on him he winds up combining with LeBron for 45 (laughs) points 10 rebounds and seven assists to have Cleveland advance to the second round against Toronto. Season-saving performance, career-defining performance from Rodney Hood. Uh, it was unbelievable.
0: You know what, man? I'm glad you brought that up because I have in my notes for the from that game, we're still waiting for the Rodney Hood game. But then in all caps, I have, it is coming. And that's coming in the second round now, thanks to LeBron. You're right. that LeBron had to do it on his own today but I still have well, faith. no,
1: no, not totally on his own. Roddy Hood did have one defensive rebound <laughs> in seven minutes. <laughs> if he hadn't done that, he would have had a seven trillion, which would have been incredible, and I would have never let you live that down. But uh, the reason why I actually started with Roddy Hood, though, Andrew, is yeah. because the story of game seven not only was LeBron sensational, but wasn't the story the minutes when he was off the court where you just expected, like, LeBron can't get a cramp. Their season's going to end, right? Mm-hmm. And lo and behold some of these other guys stepped up. George Hill, you know, they unpacked him from the bubble wrap for the second half. He goes out there and plays pretty well. Uh, Tristan Thompson, you know, who knows where he's been. You know, I'm sure TMZ does, but most of us haven't seen him in a while. Uh, he puts together a nice Game 7 performance. Kevin Love hits a couple shots. And so it was sort of the supporting cast that, you know, kept him afloat during that uh, very shaky time period at the end of the third quarter and early in the fourth um, that helped, you know, push LeBron over the finish line. And Know Hood wasn't necessarily a part of it, but your your general premise, which was, hey, these guys are going to step up. LeBron will get some level of help. Right, finally delivered in Game Seven.
0: Yes, I will say this: the Pacers series kind of freaked me out. I think I I, I think I'm yeah. not alone in having had more faith in the Cavs supporting cast than I should have. Uh, I think a lot of people expected them to be at least decent, and they just. Weren't even decent for most of this series, um, and I and part of me enjoys that. I what I enjoy about the current version of this cast team is that LeBron basically has to play like the greatest player of all time for them to have a chance to win, and he did that several times in this series, and it was great, and uh, it's fun to watch. But I think you're right too, that game seven kind of underscored that like, even with LeBron in hall of fame territory, doing crazy shit, going off for 40 plus and in all, in all these wins, like they're still going to need something from those other guys to win. And I think it was appropriate that they ultimately needed Kevin Love to show up. And I, I think if you're a cast fan, one thing that's encouraging, and we talked about it before the playoffs, like Ty Lue was going to have to find guys that he could trust in this rotation. And, uh, I mean, ideally there would be like seven or, seven or eight, but I think realistically like five or six is is all we can really hope for at this point. But it's got to be a good sign that Tristan Thompson was actually useful uh, down the stretch. And Kevin Love, like who was missing in action for almost the entire series, did show up in the fourth quarter. And that's kind of a big deal for these guys. Like, I I, who knows? I think we're taking everything a day at a time with this Cavs team, but there is at least a, a glimmer of hope that they can sort of cobble together a like NBA caliber rotation for this second round series.
1: Yeah, well said. I would say, though, Gabe Seven, there was a lot of red flags, too, because I don't know if you saw LeBron's podium post-game press conference, but he was basically begging (laughs) off. He was like, I'm exhausted. (laughs) I want to leave. I'm burnt out. Please let me go home. I mean, he was like begging like a kid who's been out in the sun too long, got sunburned and, you know, just wants to go to sleep forever. I mean, that was sort of how uh, LeBron was carrying himself. That's not what you expected after a first-round series against a plucky but a not- that great uh, Indiana Pacers team right and you can see LeBron just like maxing out his defensive effort I mean he's like racing over to cover like three-point shooters in the corner he's hounding Oladipo like 30 feet uh, from the hoop when he's you know trying to get a three-point shot off I mean LeBron really brought it and it was still so close and I guess that brings me to my takeaway which is and tell me if you agree Toronto should win this second round series, shouldn't they? I mean, I understand Cleveland's coming into that second round with momentum, with guys like Thompson finally discovering uh, the ability to look competent, with Kevin Love finally you know, hitting a couple of shots from outside, yep. uh, with George Hill back on the court. Toronto should beat. Cleveland shouldn't they I mean if they lose this series won't it be Toronto blowing it rather than Cleveland overwhelming them
0: uh I don't want to put that on the Raptors and we'll talk about the Raptors later in the podcast I I, I'm not going to say that they're blowing it if they lose to LeBron James but certainly they I mean I think they opened as the favorites in this series which which isn't terribly surprising but I think they were minus 240 which is a pretty significant favorite and uh yeah, I think I think there's no reason to trust this calf supporting cast for very much longer and I so I agree that Toronto should be favored. I just I'm not going to call it like a choke job if they lose because if they lose it will ultimately come down to some of this supporting cast taking a step forward over the next 2 weeks which isn't necessarily going to be a function of like failure on Toronto's part.
1: No, I hear you. And stylistically, there could be a big shift, right? right. And We saw that sort of in the Golden State uh, and Pelicans game one, where the Pelicans had been playing one way and having all this success against Portland. They run into a brick wall against Golden State. And all of a sudden, the the kinds of successes they were having in the first round just dried up and, and Golden State sort of playing their game and flip that around, too. I mean, Golden State plays a real slow down first round against San Antonio. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, they get into a track meet against uh, yeah, uh, New Orleans. Yeah, New Orleans. for them. Exactly. And that could happen here in the second round for Cleveland too. I mean, down the stretch, even after uh, the trade deadline, after the All-Star break, Cleveland had no problem scoring in huge quantities against Toronto. You know, they were putting up 120 plus in, in some of those games and they were just big time shootouts. LeBron was doing everything he wanted and those really shooting heavy lineups were really finding a lot of success. But I think the challenge for Cleveland is like you know that high level team offensive performance was not there against indiana right and i don't think indiana like the world's greatest defense that's the you know, thing. Stopping maybe, team. maybe
0: they are maybe we've all just been underrating the pacers all along and they are actually like a team full of grinders that are better than anyone realizes that's probably not the case but uh i think that like if to, if the Cavs come out and start dropping 120 a game against the Raptors it will make me think about the Pacers a little differently whether that's rational or not
1: well I have a question for you about LeBron it's kind of a two-part question uh he pulled out all the tricks in game seven to bring (laughs) that home uh he was selling calls left and right like I mentioned on the podium he was really playing up how tired and fatigued he was. And we know yeah. no one is more self-aware and better at kind of playing, kind of psychological mind games and, and using the media than LeBron. I mean, how much of that act did you buy? I mean, is he trying to lower expectations for Cleveland heading into game one so that Toronto will think, oh, these guys are weak. We're going to be able to just, you know, take them out early. Uh, or is he genuinely, uh, you know, experiencing the level of distress it seemed like?
0: Well, first of all, let me say, I like how diplomatically you put it uh, with selling calls for LeBron. I think there's some pretty aggressive flopping going on. And, uh, I, hey, he's the greatest player of this generation. He deserves the diplomacy. Uh, but it is hard to watch him like flopping every three plays because he kind of has to, um, uh, because if anything, he's just sort of conserving energy, uh, I will also say early on in the in the first half, like cameras caught him. I guess he was talking to Ty Lue saying, I'm going the full 48 today. Uh, and he like wasn't planning on coming out. And I saw that and it, it like ordinarily when a player says that in a game seven, it's really cool. But there was like a twinge of sadness in my heart when I saw that. I was like, man, you really have to go that hard to beat this Pacers team. Kind of a bummer.
1: Uh, and- no kidding, because because the, the sub headline is like I'm, you know, I'm going the full 48. We don't have Darren anyone else, <laughs> and the Lance Stevenson and Corey Joseph they can't hang with that. Exactly, you know? like, okay, exactly. cool. It's like
0: you need the full 48 to beat Bogdanovich. I don't know. It's a little bit of a red flag. And look, the Cavs. There's something about this Cavs team. They just never make it easy. I mean, they were up 10 at the half and then come out and just get blown off the court for the first six minutes of the third quarter. And I feel like we're all going to be, like, I'm not as exhausted as LeBron, but we're all going to be so tired of this team whenever they do go out because they will have stretches where it all kind of clicks and looks like, it, like we expected it to. And then they will have stretches where it's like, no one on the court can score or dribble and LeBron is doing everything. And how did it ever get this bad? And it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's own experience, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, they that series, they really played like a wheelbarrow with a pop tire that's kind of pushed off the side of a mountain. Like gravity's going to act on it and it's going to get that thing down to the bottom of the, uh, the valley, but it's not going to be a smooth ride. It's going to be a lot of bumps and bruises. And, and that's really what that series was. And I think for Toronto, I mean, not like they had the world's greatest first round series against Washington either, but credit them for taking care of business, getting a road win. Yep uh, in game six. I mean, not the toughest environment. I mean, that crowd was not very impressive, Andrew, but, um, <laughs> they, their depth is going to show big time in this series. Cause we're making fun of Rodney hood. We're mocking all these guys who are finally stepping up. I mean, Toronto, uh, used that second unit lineup late in game six to help close that game out. I mean, they had a guy like DeMar DeRozan on the bench for key stretches of that fourth quarter and, You know, LeBron is going to have to play an unbelievable number of minutes. And I think if you're Toronto and you continue to push the pace and you just try to, you know, play that fatigue game with LeBron, that could work. I mean, that that you know he's already at the point where it's not like his normal first round where he plays four games and then sits for a week and a half and a half and recovers. right? Right. I mean, there's going to be a 48 hour turnaround here and he just got done playing, you know, 40 something minutes, you know, multiple times in a row.
0: Well, I agree with you that Toronto will have the advantage in the bench department, but don't forget that Cleveland is going to be bringing Rodney Hood off the bench as well, and he's due for a breakout, so I think (laughs) that could sort of tip the scales a little bit. One thing that I...
1: Watch watch your back, Van Vliet. You've got some competition.
0: (laughs) One thing that should seriously be taken into consideration is George Hill did not look like himself for most of this series and did not look healthy. And then, like you said earlier, second half today, you started to see some signs of life from him. And he's going to be really important uh, trying to keep up with Kyle Lowry and uh, Van Vliet and DeRozan. Like They're going to need a, a real like NBA player <laughs> to, to start in the backcourt. And, I mean, Jose Calderon has just not been that... Guy. And so, hopefully, Hill is healthy because I think it'll be a much closer series if we get him at like 80%. Yeah.
1: And just to flip that around, Kyle Lowry needs to eat in this series, yeah. right? Yeah. He needs to chill with all those, you know, if he's not on, he needs to chill with the deep step back threes and he just needs to work hard off the dribble and really force Cleveland's defense. Uh, to pay him lots of attention and then just keep the ball moving. I mean, he has every opportunity to have a big series here. Their offense should play very well. I'm not convinced by, you know, Cleveland's sort of defensive success, if you want to call that in the first round. You know, I'm more trusting what the regular season numbers said they were than what happened in that first round series. Uh, And, you know, it'll be fascinating to see, you know, whether he's able to, you know, kind of make use of uh of a new advantage positionally because last year you know you're, you're looking at that matchup it's like Kyrie versus Lowry like you kind of expect Kyrie to win that right uh this year it's like there is no excuse Kyle like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go out there and torch Jose Calderon and torch George Hill who's played with a bad back and torch whatever two guard they try to put on you and go out there and get some big numbers
0: yeah uh, all right well we should move on but before we do I do want to give a little bit of love to the Pacers because I know you and I have both sort of cracked jokes along the way in this series.
1: But Andrew, keep it to be a little bit of love because I saw too much gushing after a first-round exit All on right. Twitter today. Look, okay, <laughs> Don't go overboard here like a lot of people want to.
0: In my opinion, the pay- I'm not going to speak for you. I'll- I will only say that I was shocked by how awesome this Pacers team was both today and throughout the season, but specifically, let's just keep it to Game 7. I mean, there were two or three stretches in the second quarter, early in the fourth, later in the fourth. It looked like the Cavs were about to pull away, and guys like Oladipo and Darren Collison just kept on fighting their way back into it. Sabonis was much better in this series than I expected him to be. Miles Turner, kind of a flake in this series, but I think is still really important to their future. And and him getting better is one clear way this Pacers team can kind of like take a step forward. Uh, I would have liked to see how the game would have looked if Oladipo had started the fourth quarter. Those when those two minutes when LeBron was on the bench, but. Oh, well. Uh, still just an awesome season for them. And Oladipo is like worlds better than I ever expected. And even even if you go back to March and you had Pacers fans talking about how good he was, like I didn't really take it seriously until the past couple weeks. And uh, he's awesome. He's like a, a full-on superstar. And I think the next few years in Indiana will be so much more interesting than anyone would have expected six months ago. So I think it's a win for them.
1: I applaud your restraint. I agreed with every single word that you just said there. The right tone. You didn't go overboard. You didn't celebrate it like it was a title. They had a very nice season. They were a good team, not a special or a great team. They tried really hard. They they bent, but they didn't really break. Uh, and they exit the season with pride. One thing I want to say on Oladipo's improvement to kind of back up what you just said. Mm-hmm. Last summer, I, I got into one of those like secret, uh, you know, summer workout sessions. Ola was there, Dwayne Wade was there, Jimmy Butler was there. I mean, there was like a pretty good crop of players, right? Yeah. And as I was watching these guys do, you know, full court five on five scrimmage, uh, I was thinking to myself, Ola Depot doesn't look that special. Like some of the guys who were out there were like D1 college athletes, some of them were like former pros. You know, he wasn't doing anything that crazy. And I was like, huh, well, that makes me a little nervous for what Indiana season's (laughs) going to be, right? So in the middle of that Cleveland series, uh, I watched with one of those VR headsets, and it puts you like right underneath the basket when you watch the game. And so I was pretty much in the exact same position I was, having watched their scrimmage over the summer. And look... My mind was completely blown how quick explosive he was off the dribble, how easily he was getting into seams, how well he was finishing, uh, you know, kind of contorting his body around defenders, double clutching, going under the rim to finish stuff as I was watching it VR compared to, uh, you know, the same product, something like 10 months ago. So his transformation and overhaul just visually aesthetically on the court, uh is everything that everyone said it has been i mean we we should underscore that it was one of the biggest stories i think you know individually in the entire nba this season
0: yeah and he was a legitimate problem for the Cavs in every game i mean granted he had a couple games there where he didn't shoot as well but he was just sort of a terror on both ends and uh i don't know i'm still kind of blown away by how good he is but um Let's uh let's move on here to Pelicans Warriors. We'll move from the good Pacers to the terrifyingly great Warriors. Uh, my we're gonna take we're gonna try and hit each series, do about ten minutes on each series. Uh, we've already gone over on the Cavs,
1: but oh, that's because we did seven on Rodney and ten on the rest of the series. Right? That's fine. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Pelicans Warriors, and Rodney Hood de- deserved those seven minutes. Pelicans-Warriors, but the question I had coming out of that series, or game one, was are the playoffs already over? What do you think?
1: It's a very fair question. I mean, those were the world-beating Warriors. We have not seen that Warriors team play like that. At least I haven't right. in months. I think it was their most points since mid-March. I think it was their biggest mar- uh, margin of victory since late February. The fact that they did it without Steph is the scariest part. <laughs> uh, there's no question about it. And the quote that stuck out to me you know, from Game 1, and yeah. you know, obviously Golden State blew New Orleans off the uh, court, but the quote that jumped out to me was Anthony Davis saying, you know, what they did to us in the second quarter was an embarrassment to us. We're not that type of team. And I think the big problem for New Orleans is that they're the same type of team as Golden State. They want to run and get up and down. They want to sort of maximize their ability to use, you know, like their star's length and versatility in Davis. Um, And then, you know, they also want to just take advantage of the space and and, uh, the opportunities that their superstar guy creates to let their other guys eat, right? And Mm -hmm. the big problem here is Golden State's deeper, Golden State's more talented, Golden State's more uh, tested, more proven, more cohesive. They're better overall shooters, and they're more disciplined defensively. So, you know, the Pelicans might not be that type of team like they showed during like the 25 to 2 run uh, in the second quarter. But unfortunately, they're just little brother here. And Um, this should be a quick series. I was really impressed with how Golden State ramped it up. Uh, That goes for everybody, starting with Draymond, uh, but also Durant. Um, And if they get Curry back for Game 2 like expected, it's going to be a long series, or or rather a short series, I think, for Alvin Gentry and company.
0: Well, and and it's a bummer. I mean, I I am personally bummed out by the developments so far in this series. I did not think that Steph was going to come back as quickly as it looks like he's going to. Um, and I also thought that the Pelicans would be able to hang a little bit more than they did or a lot more than they did. But as I said that last week, I said, I'm probably going to look back and regret feeling any sort of optimism for this series. Um, and I think you hit on a lot of it, like watching that, even the first half, I mean, it it got like pretty ugly in the second half, but you could even see it in the first half. The Warriors are just a, a really bad matchup. Um, For the Pelicans like the the Blazers were the best possible matchup for New Orleans and the Warriors are kind of the worst possible matchup because the Blazers guards were so bad it made some of the Pelicans guards look better than they actually are and uh, on the flip side like the Pelicans up front are actually pretty good like Miritich is pretty good and then Anthony Davis is amazing and is a like legitimate top five player. But uh, the Golden State has, has good personnel to throw at those guys. And, and then defensively, it's just a total mess. Like the whole first round, we were laughing at Nurkic and Aminu trying to guard Anthony Davis. But now Miritich is out here trying to guard Kevin Durant for 30 minutes. And I, yeah. I don't know. Good <laughs> it's luck. not going to end well.
1: Yeah, good luck. I mean, yeah, their front line's good, but would you have rather have any front line combination uh, other than Durant, Durant and Draymond? Yeah, totally. No, of course not. And I love Steve Kerr's starting lineup. I mean, they have a lot of different ways they can play. The fact that he's so flexible and willing to adjust his starters is a huge advantage and it's, you know, kind of revolutionary. I mean, I remember even five years ago when uh, a coach would make a starting lineup change, it felt like we were all freaking out about it. And Golden State, and partly because Curry's uh, hurt, but partly because their center position is such a weird, you know, grab bag of guys. Right. They really can change these lineups. And the fact that they went small with Draymond made a lot of sense. But then they also dusted off one of my other favorite things, Andrew, which was interchangeable, right? Because they put out uh, <laughs> Nick Young, Iguodala, uh, and Klay Thompson with Durant and Green, so now they can switch everything on the court. They've got a whole bunch of guys who can bother you as ball handlers. They have all sorts of length. You know, Gentry was sort of you know ruining how basically everyone on the court was you know six seven or six eight, and the tallest guy for Golden State, uh, Kevin Durant. You know, he's got you know he plays like a seven footer basically, but he can move in space no problem, and he's used to defending on the perimeter. So they made life so difficult uh, for Drew Holiday and Rondo, and think about that. I mean, talk about you know going from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool when you're going against you know Lillard and McCollum right. compared to Iguodala and Durant. I mean, your life is just <laughs> so much harder. Your efficiency is guaranteed to plummet in that situation.
0: Yeah, it's pretty tough. And then on the Warriors side of this, from a big picture standpoint, I'm not just reacting to game one and being like, holy shit, the Warriors are amazing again. I think there are a couple real factors to consider here like Steph is already healthy enough to play and they were, they're holding him out extra long, which to me is weirdly ominous for the rest of the league. And, and then also like more generally Steph's last MCL injury, he came back in like two weeks, but here he's had the full six weeks and Kerr has him in the bubble wrap and may not even bring him back for game two. Like, but it, it looks like he's probably going to be healthy coming back against the Rockets in the conference finals. So, again, not a great sign if you're a Rockets fan. And then the main thing with the Warriors that I've seen that has kind of surprised me is Draymond. I mean, the best argument for doubting Golden State this spring was that Draymond just wasn't the same guy anymore. His body had worn down. He wasn't mentally locked in. And, like, all of which looked plausible for for most of the regular season and I know it did though it did you are a Draymond believer and I appreciate you staying loyal. but like he was all over the place for the better part of this season and he has looked incredible so far in these playoffs I mean he was good against the Spurs he dominated Saturday night and if Steph is healthy and Draymond is Draymond like everyone else is screwed we could all go home
1: No, I mean, Draymond was just jogging. There's a difference between being chaotic and terrible and whatever else you wanted to say about him and conserving his energy. And I think, you know, he did not have his best regular season ever. No one on that team did. The way I put it in my game one recap is that they were, you know, the most talented and the least urgent 58-win team in NBA history because that's what they were. And that started with Draymond. But he has completely... Can I put
0: it in different terms? I understand and don't begrudge him the, like ability to just coast throughout the regular season I just didn't think that we were at that point with Draymond yet like he, he's in the middle of his prime and he sort of treated the regular season like Andre Iguodala did and I didn't think that we were there yet but it makes sense well, I don't blame him
1: well I will blame him because it frustrates me because I hate <laughs> watching a really talented team just not care for six months and have no consequences to suffer for you know that bothers me on a deep level but hey it's they play by different rules yeah. I mean they're that talented they're that good uh, you know, if you want to call it light years, quote unquote, go ahead and call it that. But uh, I don't like to see teams jogging for that long, but I mean, they could do it. I mean, their their philosophy is working. I mean, they are peaking now. And how many other teams around the league can we say are peaking? You know, I'd say Houston's, you know, pretty close. I would say, uh, you know, Philly is probably peaking, but Cleveland's definitely not peaking. I wouldn't call what Toronto is doing peaking. Right. I mean, their 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 management in terms of how they're getting themselves through these series, through these matchups, how they're deploying their personnel, keeping minutes off of guys, all that stuff has been validated uh, to this point because they turned in that kind of a performance in Game 1. And hopefully they continue to do that uh, because, you know, that's what greatness is.
0: Well, and you talk about the peaking thing. I mean, this is one team that I don't blame for ever coasting and looking ahead to the finals because, first of all, they're so stacked that they're judged Entirely on what happens in June, Um, and second of all, this is the one team that like we've seen them grind through the regular season and look amazing, and then have it all kind of fall apart because they a lot of them ran out of gas, Um, and also Steph was hurt and Draymond got suspended, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, Draymond lost control of his hands. It's a good point, but let me ask you this. On that point, should they bring Steph back for Game 2 or should they just wait? I mean, Barkley was arguing, bring him back for Game 3. You get the boost on the road. You get the extra four days of rest. I mean, would you do that? Or would you just say, hey, bring 30 back?
0: No, I I would hold him out. Although I think part of this now comes down to Steph because I think he really wanted to play in Game 1 and you could tell listening to him talk about it. And at some point, holding him out, you got to kind of like throw him a bone too. I mean, he's been playing by the rules, sitting out this whole time. And I think he, his will will probably win out and he'll be on the court for game two. But if I were the, the Warriors, I'd be like, look, we have control of this series. Like really my worry for them was that they were going to go down. 02 to the Pelicans. And then Steph would come back for game three. Like even if they split with the Pelicans in these first two games without <laughs> Steph, like they're completely fine.
1: Uh, yeah, no no doubt. I mean, can you imagine the meeting like Bob Myers calls Steph into his office? He's like, Steph, look, we have a championship parade coming up in about a month and a half. We're going to need you on your feet <laughs> there for about six hours. So we don't want to rush anything here in the interim time period. And then, you know, right after that, we're hoping that uh, you're going to be able to join us in the Hamptons for our next round of free agency interviews with, uh, you know, prospective applicants. I mean, that's going to be a grueling process, you know, probably at least eight hours a day for a week. So, uh, we're just going to leave you out through the finals, uh, but we'll ch- we'll check back in every few weeks. <laughs> but for now, you know, just treat it like you're on vacation. I mean, well, that's the embarrassment of riches they've got right and now. And it's
0: also funny because I can imagine Steph in that meeting sitting there being like, look, I'm not going to act like LeBron. I'm not going to act like Russ. I've been uh, like the good guy throughout all of this and I've been cool. Kerr calling Kevin Durant the second best player in the league. I'm trying to play it cool, but let me back on the fucking court. So I I built this. I wasn't
1: in the Uber commercial, but I built this. Exactly. Exactly.
0: But I don't know. The one thing I will say, I don't think every game in this series is going to be a 30-point blowout, I think the Pelicans will make some adjustments and make it a little bit more interesting than it was. But yeah, the, the Warriors are as terrifying as ever.
1: Um, and- yeah, and they're a big trouble to me, I mean, besides Curry, which is going to be tough, but you mentioned Miritich on Durant. Like, yeah. what are their other adjustment options? Who's guarding him? I mean, KD's going to get any shot he wants over any of their wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do you really want Davis chasing KD around? I mean, I don't see what matchup they can do to really adjust to make KD's life easier. KD should feast regardless of what happens. And you can kind of say the same thing for Clay too. I mean, I think his size advantage there, again, uh, shown through in game one on the offensive end because of what he's able to get. And I think that that's just sort of the, the real downside of the way the Pelicans play is like, if you have wings who aren't big-time scorers or shooters, or they're smaller, you know, their their guards can really lock you up, bottle you up. If you've got size, length, uh, you know, on the wing, you know, they're they're going to be at a big disadvantage.
0: Yeah. Well, and the other thing is Miritich is really important to their offense. But it, I don't know how you play him against the Warriors starters without giving up a lot of ground. Uh, but... Th- well,
1: kudos to him for getting the Gillette Razor deal. <laughs> I know. I'm
0: early. happy for it. Way to capitalize <laughs> on the last couple of weeks. Uh, let's move on. I did not watch Jazz Rockets game one. I had a social commitment Sunday afternoon. Oh, wow.
1: Mr. Popular, look at you. Look,
0: I'm going to let you summarize this in like two minutes. I don't really want to spend that much time on it because it was a blowout and the Jazz Thunder game was more interesting. But what did you see in game one?
1: Uh, I mean, what you expect. You know, Utah comes off of this very emotional win at home. They have a quick turnaround. They don't have Ricky Rubio. And they get down big early to Houston uh, rather than punting the game at halftime, which I would have seriously considered uh, if I was Quinn Snyder. But mm-hmm. you know, that's not really their DNA. And that's not how they play. And when you're going against Houston, which has, you know, at times in recent years, blown big leads in the post- postseason, you, I guess, you know, stick around and really grind through it. Uh, they whittled it down a little bit in the second half, but never really made it truly interesting. Harden was getting basically everything that he wanted. He was playing in total control, unlike Russell Westbrook. And he was having a lot of success in that sort of, you know, one-on-one matchup with Rudy Gobert, where, uh, you know, Gobert was having a lot uh, harder time keeping everything in front of him. And then Harden was doing a nice job of kind of working in that middle space to create an offense both for himself uh, and for his teammates. And then same thing, you know, if, if Gobert would get himself into situations where he's matched up after switches on either, you know, Chris Paul or Harden they really masterfully kind of, you know, pulled him away from the basket, tried to, you know, work around him in space and and got really high percentage looks. They were also hitting their threes like the supporting guys as well. I mean, right. Tucker had a nice night and Houston's really tough to beat in that scenario. If one of these two games I wouldn't overreact to, it would be this one compared to the Golden State one. You know, I don't necessarily expect Golden State to win every game in that series by 20 or 30, but I think they're clearly better in that matchup. I think Utah will have a better chance than they showed in this game one loss against Houston. But I still think this is, you know, this series is in Houston's command.
0: Yeah. I mean, to me, looking at this series, I think this is going to be kind of a case study and a long-standing argument that you and I have had where, like offense in the nba is just so much more valuable than defense and i think that defense is only going to really take you so far and we will probably see that borne out in this matchup although i've come to really love this jazz team and i hope that they can even it up and uh and at least push the rockets a little bit and speaking as a newly biased like jazz convert I don't understand why the NBA had to play this game on Sunday afternoon. Like they're stretching out to see the next game is until Wednesday. I don't know why you wouldn't just put this game at like 10 p.m. on, uh, on Monday night.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously their rationale is money, right? I mean, they get higher TV ratings on the weekends, I think, but yeah, I guess the question is, do people tune out at halftime? If one team's down 25, I would guess that happens, you know? So are you thinking small when you should be thinking bigger picture? I guess that's kind of the question, but um, you know, Houston had a good energy about them regardless. You know, I think even if Utah had been rested and full strength, I think the Rockets would still win that game. Um, but, you know, going forward, You know, we've seen Houston be a fairly high variance team here in the playoffs, right? Like they had some stretches where they looked really ugly. They dropped a game in Minnesota. We've also seen Utah's home court advantage and their ability to control tempo uh, and the glass and everything else at home. Yeah. Uh, Not to mention like Donovan Mitchell's offensive explosions at home. uh, Been really tough for teams to contend with, you know, in terms of the Oklahoma City Thunder. So I don't think this is going to be, you know, a one-sided series. But like I said, I do think Houston's in control here.
0: All right. Well, you mentioned the Thunder and Donovan Mitchell explosions. Let's move to Jazz Thunder game six. It was another Golliver religious experience. Take me inside the tabernacle on on Friday night.
1: Is it going too far to say that was sort of a battle for the soul of the game? I mean, that's (laughs) kind of what it felt like. Yes, it is
0: 100% (laughs) going too far, but I'll let
1: you continue. I mean, that game had everything. That's one of the best games outside of, say, the finals and, like, the truly high-stakes games, right? I thought that was one of the the most entertaining games that I've seen in years. Uh Obviously, the atmosphere was unbelievable, but the intrigue and just the caricatures of guys coming forward, you know, like, Paul George gets knocked for being not the best in big moments. He completely and utterly disappears. Russell Westbrook gets knocked for... Uh, putting everything upon himself. He comes through and takes 43 shots. Carmelo Anthony gets knocked for not being very helpful, and maybe he needs to get dumped from the rotation for months. Lo and behold, what happens? You know, that's how it plays out. Donovan Mitchell is getting all this hype uh, as the the guy who can do it all, and he's so good in that game, but also throughout that series that it was no longer surprising, Andrew. It was no longer that like pinch yourself. Here he goes to the basket. He hits another impossible layup again. It was like, oh yeah, that's Donovan Mitchell. That's just what he does now. Um, Nevertheless, I mean, it all came down to that frenetic closing sequence. I don't think I have ever seen a game where a team went 0 for 7 in the final minute (laughs) and 0 for 5 on a single possession. And it was It was hilarious because Utah is a good rebounding team. They're staying big throughout so much of that series. They should be getting the rebound. And it actually gave me terrible flashbacks to San Antonio not getting the rebound that set up the uh, Ray Allen corner three against Miami Uh as they were just letting all these guys just take shot after shot after shot. But nobody could hit it. And, you know, of course, there was the the controversy of the Paul George no call as well thrown in there just to add another layer to all of this. But (laughs) just a spectacular game. And... I think what made it satisfying as a viewer was Utah did exactly what I said on the last podcast. They trusted the math. You know, they said Westbrook's not going to beat us four times if he plays this way. Yeah. Uh he's not going to be able to be efficient enough as a shooter to beat us and they their offense bounced back. I thought they cleaned up a lot of stuff in terms of what they were uh, the mistakes they were making. And then, you know, their role players, you know, played better at home as well and that helped too. So, I just thought they're resolve and poise after you know blowing that lead in game five uh made them deserved winners in that series and in game six
0: yeah i have a number of responses uh i first of all donovan mitchell at at this point we're we're becoming like a part-time donovan mitchell podcast but that third quarter from him was just beautiful (laughs) like And I I don't want to take too much of a victory lap, but all of this is why I said everyone was being too casual, dismissing him from the rookie of the year race. Like he is amazing and very, very legit.
1: Uh, Wait, let me ask you something though. Do you agree with me? When he was doing, what he was doing in the third quarter, Was it surprising? Like, obviously, it's sort of like this out-of-body experience, scoring explosion, you know, to kind of counter Westbrook's from the previous game. But were you sitting this thinking like, man, I can't believe a rookie is doing this? Like the stuff that people always say about Tatum. Oh, wow. It's (laughs) so impressive. He's only 20. Um, Or were you just thinking, yeah, Uh, Donovan Mitchell's here. He's already proved it. He's this guy. You
0: know what I was actually thinking? Because basically he was hitting most of his shots in that third quarter i think he was like perfect from the field for most of that third quarter and what i was thinking is that this is kind of a vision of what he's going to be in a couple years as the rest of his game improves and as the shooting becomes more consistent um and the other thing i i was thinking is that like these are the kind of stretches that most people will forget about by the time the playoffs are over but like for people who are watching that third quarter in the moment, like that's as good as playoff basketball gets because he was just all over the place, best player on the floor. And you're right, it shouldn't be surprising at this point because he was that guy in I think 5 of these 6 games. Like he was the best player on the floor in most of these games, which is unbelievable, but at at some point I guess it just kind of becomes who he is.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh... Do you agree that Utah had the best big one, the best big two, the best big three, the best big five, the best one to 15, the better coach and the better general manager and the better home court advantage in that series? (laughs) See, you're becoming a full-blown jazz evangelist. I will say... Hey, somebody had to say it. I mean, that was true. Do you dispute any of those points along the way?
0: (laughs) My favorite text message from you all weekend was you sending me, this game is the sixth national park in the middle of that fourth quarter. (laughs)
1: Um, <laughs> no we just need to protect it for future generations look, you know look let me tell uh, you take something. nothing but pictures leave nothing but footprints okay Andrew? <laughs> I mean, that's what we need a pristine version of that game for all time
0: can i tell you something for real though i i love this jazz team i do feel like they got very very lucky with some of those calls on the paul george foul i mean the 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 one with Gobert, that's more of a 50-50 call. Like, he was leaning in. It doesn't bug me too much to not give the offensive player that call in that situation. Although, in general, when you get a guy in the air and and lean in a little bit to create contact, the offensive player gets that call. So I thought it was pretty shaky to not give him that call. Even shakier though was the play about 45 seconds before that where Paul George was again fouled shooting a three and they did not give him continuation and called it on the floor like that seemed pretty egregious to me and the combination of those two I mean the right team won this series but I wish they had won it a little bit differently.
1: Well, Andrew, I'm actually looking here at my welcome documents from the uh, the Jazz Tabernacle Association. <laughs> and in the in the documents it says basically you have to counter any claim of uh, you know, poor officiating by pointing to Michael Jordan pushing off on Brian Russell <laughs> in nineteen ninety eight, and that allows you to win okay, any argument. That's I fair. think it's just a makeup call. <laughs> you know, twenty years later, right? I mean, wasn't that wasn't that what we got on the Paul George play? No, I was with you. I mean, that could have been a foul. You know, I, I definitely see why they were upset. Um, yeah. but I don't know if that was the game either, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and also I'm not really in the mood to defend Paul George right now because not strictly because of that game, but really the whole series and, and a lot of this season, like I'm just not very impressed with Paul George at this point in his career. I think he might be one mm. of the most overrated players in the NBA. Ooh. Uh, and I just, I don't love his game. And, like, he was 2 of 13 and, and, like, really struggling in Game 6. And you had Lakers fans tweeting at him being like, don't worry, Paul, you'll be in L.A. soon. And my thought was, like, if I were a Lakers fan, I would not be, like, pining for Paul George to come in and be, like, the guy next year. If Paul George is coming with LeBron, that's a different story. But if Paul George is just coming by himself, like, I don't think he's very efficient. I think he... He thinks he's Kobe Bryant when he should be playing more like Chris Middleton. And, uh, and it just kind of bums me out watching him.
1: Yeah. Well, I was sitting there watching the post-game press conference for game seven, waiting for our favorite international reporter who kind of trolled Paul George after game two. (laughs) Remember he had a bad game in game two and the international reporter is like, did you feel the stress of, of playoff P and you know, it was a really awkward situation. I was waiting for her to be like, Hey, you know, is playoff P going to show up in game seven. Oh wait, that's right. Your season's over. Like I was ready for her to go back (laughs) at him, just dart him a little bit. Um, his playoff P did not It show was a up, rough uh,
0: end for our hero, playoff P. But Lou Slips Paul was in full effect, sending mixed signals to everyone. Who, who even knows what he is going to try to do this summer?
1: Yeah, and that was actually the takeaway from his post-game press conference. If you compare side-by-side side what he said last year in Indiana after their final loss compared to what he said after game six, it was night and day. His quote last year after their game four sweep against Cleveland in Indiana was, I ain't even at that point, Bob, next question. That's all he said about his future in Indiana. I mean, read between those lines, not difficult. Right. But this year, like you're mentioning, he's throwing out signals everywhere. And I think the the money quote was, it's too soon. I'd love to remain a thunder, but that's what this summer is for. But he also went on to say it was an amazing season. He loved to see what the potential they had there when he was playing with um, you know Andre Robertson uh, you know, he basically name checked half his teammates and said there was tons to be happy about the fans, the city, the organization. So, I mean, he really went above and beyond what you normally would see in that situation, Mm -hmm. especially if a guy already had one foot out the door. And I just want to real quickly hit one other, uh, you know, in addition to the refereeing, the good fortune, maybe uh, Utah had in game six on that. They also had some really good fortune that Robertson was not out there and was injured because, that matchup, I think, would have looked totally different. I think Mitchell's life would have been significantly more difficult uh, had Robertson been healthy. And that was one of the lingering what ifs I think that hangs over this Thunder season is not only was it kind of dysfunctional in terms of how it ended, but it it could have looked a lot better. I mean, and all it would have taken was one guy being healthy. Well,
0: it's also interesting to think about what it would have looked like had Cantor still been on the team instead of Melo, because I think particularly in this matchup, banging with Utah would have maybe favored the Thunder, um, and they weren't able to do that because Melo is just a shell of himself, and, uh, and they didn't really have anybody else. I mean, this is a team that gutted like its role players to load up with stars, and the stars didn't really show up. Beyond Russ, I think you were a little hard on Russ because there weren't many alternatives in that game and Russ came through over and over again. I'm not, I'm not going to like call his game perfect, but he showed up and he did not go out with a whimper. So here's one way to have some final thoughts on Russ, who will be ranked higher in next year's top 100 Russ or Rudy Gobert?
1: Well, first of all, on mellow, and remember how I used to say he's a bystander to his own reality or his own legacy. I think what we've seen here is the fall from grace because this was a guy who came into the NBA. Uh, you know, is it him or LeBron? Yeah. Who do you build your franchise around? Now you're at the point where you're saying, well, actually, I think I'd probably rather have Canner <laughs> in the playoffs. <laughs> it's a guy well, who couldn't stay on the floor for years in the playoffs. I mean, that of weeks is. For but in terms of Westbrook versus Gobert, it's a very tricky question. Uh, but what I, I I would say is this. In the individual matchup, Gobert is like the exact player you want to have against Westbrook's specific uh, skill set, mm-hmm. because so much of what he wants to do is go into the basket. If Gobert just takes that away, it totally changes him as a player. So I think in this particular matchup, Westbrook looks about as bad as he could against you know any random team, whereas Gobert looks about as effective and impactful as he does uh, against virtually any other team, right? So that's why I'm really going to be looking at this Houston series carefully, because if he winds up uh, you know, he's not going to be an accessory to the action, right? But if Houston's able to consistently score a lot with him on the court, I think uh, perception of Gobert as, uh, you know, uh, a more valuable overall talent than Westbrook will, will probably start to fade a little bit, right. but it's a lot closer than most people think. Um, you know, personally, who would I rather have to start my team? I'll tell you, I would take Gobert, but I think uh, in a vacuum, uh, I can definitely see arguments still for Westbrook because of his ability to get to the basket and to just be relentless and to bring it every single night. Um, that will beat a lot of teams out there. Uh, it just happened to not work against this Utah Jazz team, which was really uh, well crafted to slow him down. Yeah,
0: yeah, I I agree with you. I think it, it is probably going overboard to to say Gobert is clearly more valuable, but they're in the same range now. And I I wrote about this earlier in the year, but like, I think this season was sort of about a market correction for Russell Westbrook because for the last two years or so, he's been mentioned in the Steph Harden class of like definite top five, top six guys. And I think he's just a tier below that group. And uh, I think somewhere in the range of like the seventh best player to the 12th best player in the NBA, that's where he belongs. And that's not where he's been discussed the last few years. Um, and I think, yeah, it almost it makes more sense to to talk to think about him as a phenomenal individual player who is going to put some limits on your team that complement uh, that complicates his value.
1: Yeah, I mean, a couple other thoughts. I mean, Gobert's offense is going to be better and more impactful and more consistent than Westbrook's defense. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And I also think it's easier to build around Gobert. Yeah. Than it is to build around around Westbrook. I think you can, you know, in theory, have a team that's, you know, a a contender with Gobert as your best player. And I'm of the opinion right now that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to have a team that's a true contender with Westbrook as your best player, given his inability to address some of his flaws.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess if we're thinking bigger picture, i agree with that and we we talked about this for like 20 minutes on the last podcast so we don't need to go too much further into it but i was thinking about it throughout game six and i think we ultimately nailed it at the end of our last conversation like as far as the think peace wars are concerned and the attacks on russ like I'm conditioned to roll my eyes at some of the efficiency complaints because that discussion often misses the point with players. It shortchanges some of what makes certain guys resonate and some of the spirit that makes basketball cooler than other sports. When and like I think basketball is about more than just winning titles or playing the most efficient style. But the specific experience of watching Russ has gotten complicated over the last year or two because, like we said on the last pod, he just can't really evolve. And we've lived this story too many times now, and we know what the ceiling is, and it's just not as fun as it used to be. It's, it's like watching a band that makes the same album over and over again. And eventually it gets old and I think that's sort of what's happening with Russ and that's part of why on the, on the last pod like it would be fun to see him in a different context because I don't think that it's going to get better from here with the Thunder.
1: Yeah, I mean what changes? I mean, besides the color of his jersey, you know? Right. I mean, well, <laughs> like I think if if you mates... put him on a different team, look, no, I'm saying like let's put him on the Knicks, right? Whoever their next coach is. Isn't that guy gonna have that same look that Billy Donovan looks? I mean, the only difference is gonna be the shade of blue on his jersey, right? Maybe, what else changes? Maybe.
0: But I think if you put him next to a point guard and let him play off the ball, his game could look a little different. If if you put him with a, a big who's more creative, it's funny though, like We've talked a lot about, and and there have been lots of discussions I've seen on Twitter about, like, the ideal guy to pair him with, and it's, it's a real bummer because the ideal guy is definitely James Harden, and unfortunately, that ship sailed, like, six years ago, um...
1: Uh, I would actually say the ideal guy is Kevin Durant, but at the same point, (laughs) and that's the thing, and you're saying, what would he look like if he played off a point guard? Well, you know, maybe that point guard winds up getting traded for pennies on the dollar. What would he look like against a skilled, uh, you know, alongside a skilled big guy? That skilled big guy's most important skill would be offensive rebound. (laughs) You know, (laughs) what are we talking about? Like, you can make these hypotheticals, but who's going to change more, Westbrook to accommodate new teammates or those teammates? Yeah,
0: well, it's tough. It's tough. Um, but let's move on. Have a good summer, Russ. We'll revisit all of this in October. Uh, Bucks Celtics, let's keep this quick. I am so sick of watching that Bucks team, and I'm glad that we don't have to continue this for another couple weeks. I mean, Shabazz Muhammad played a lot in that second half, and that is such a damning indictment of how the Bucks have been constructed. I know a lot of people have been taking shots at Prunty. And obviously like he bears responsibility for throwing some of those guys on the court in game seven. But like, to me, it goes beyond coaching and there are just some fatal flaws in this roster and maybe it'll look better with a a more competent coach there. But like, it just, it's a drag watching this team right now.
1: Yeah. Have you ever done that mental exercise of like, you could pick your favorite three players, whoever they would be, best three guys out there and let them play three on five against like the Suns, and, and would they have a chance of winning? Right. So you can imagine these scenarios like LeBron, KD, and Anthony Davis, like, could they beat the Suns? Right. And you start thinking it through and you're like, well, oh, they might have a shot. Like, it's a fun mental exercise. It's a fun way to like waste off season hours on basketball podcasts during the summer when we have nothing else to talk <laughs> yeah, about. We'll, we'll that should not lie. Yeah. But that should not be your plan in April. And the Bucks felt like a team. It was like, okay, we're going to have two guys who are among like the top eight players in the playoffs in Giannis and Chris Middleton. And we're going to throw them out with fans, you know, and we're just going to see if they can keep up with the Celtics and see how that's going to go. I mean, Shabazz Muhammad, uh, Thon bless his heart. You know, he had a couple of nice moments. Uh, Brogdon was really rough at Gabe Sev. I mean, Jason Terry uh, should just be an assistant coach. I think we could probably agree on that at this point. Yep. It, it was like they were saying, okay, we're going to have two of the best guys. Three randoms, how's that going to go for a series? And they pushed it to seven, so I guess congratulations, but better strategy next time, guys.
0: Well, first of all, I want Jason Terry to stay in the league until he's like 50, but I don't want to watch Jason Terry play critical minutes in playoff games. (laughs) That is taking it a step too far, and that's sort of where the Bucs have been. Um, And by the way, like, when I say the way this team is constructed, I just I I think they need more helpful guys off the bench than they have right now, and it really is. It feels like a team of like three guys you can definitely count on, and then three other guys who are good maybe forty percent of the time, and then that's really it. That's all they have, and uh, that's I. They, look, Giannis came out afterwards and said we, we thought we were the better team. I don't agree. I think they they have. More talent. I like how you slipped in Chris Middleton as one of the eight best players in the playoffs. That, I don't know if I'm going to go that far, but Chris Middleton and Giannis are really good. Eric Bledsoe has talent, but I don't know how well he channels it at this point. And beyond that, I don't know.
1: Well, until this postseason, the highest you could shoot was 100 percent from the field. I believe Chris Middleton shot 137 percent from the field during the playoffs. I don't think he missed a shot for like two that. weeks. Andrew, look,
0: he cleaned up in garbage time when the when the Bucks were down 20 against get the Celtics.
1: So get out of here. This, he did not. He had a nice series, but I think the real takeaway from this series, though, all seriousness, Bledsoe was not who he thought yes, he was. Right? I think I that mean, would the, be
0: I, if I would look into trading him if I were them this summer.
1: I mean, <laughs> trading low. <laughs> are you trying to work a deal with Yao Ming and the China Basketball Association, or where are you looking to trade up Denmark? I, don't know. I mean, yeah. I don't know.
0: Look, uh, does this Celtics team have a chance against the Sixers?
1: I will say this I really hope not because uh, I, Philly, just. Take care of this. We do not want to keep getting these begging emails from Celtics fans saying, "Oh wow, down three and a half of their best players, they still gut out a seven-game series victory over your favorite player Giannis." (laughs) Like, I'm I'm sick of it. Philly, put us out of our misery. Put Boston out of its misery. Just take care of business. I think the Sixers should win this series. Um, Oh yeah, you know because they have the inside-outside balance and they've got the shooting. They've got the overall offensive framework, and they know what to do uh, once the initial foray is stymied. I mean, so much of Milwaukee's problems came down to, like, if Giannis couldn't get to the rim on any given possession, then it just bogs down into one-on-one ISO tough two, or they try to skip the ball around the perimeter, and it winds up being a turnover, right, because of carelessness or just inattention. And I think Philly should not have those problems, and they're much more explosive offensively as a team than Milwaukee. They're much, much better defensively, and I think uh, they should handle this series in five or six games based on Boston's health situation.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I, I, You don't gamble, so you wouldn't really know how this feels, but every now and then I'll see like a line where it just looks too obvious and I, I have to kind of do a double take, like am I missing something? And I've seen a number of other NBA writers be like, look, the Celtics – present some interesting challenges to the Sixers and this could be close I don't really see that they, they seem to me like a second version of the Heat where they have athletes that they can throw at Ben Simmons and they're gonna play hard they're gonna scrap and they're gonna be tough to beat but Boston has even less guys who can step up and and have like a, a random game here or there where they go off than the Heat did and uh I don't know. I like it'll be it'll be tough. I I hope that the games are competitive, but I'm not really that worried. If I'm a Sixers fan, I will say this though: the current version of this Celtics team just adds to the blinding jealousy that I've had for the Celtics over the past few years. Like watching Saturday night, these are playoff games, and I was I was thinking about it during Game Seven. This has got to feel almost like summer league for Boston and Boston's fans, like. This isn't the actual team, and it's more like an extended exhibition where you're just rooting for future stars to be as fun and ridiculous as possible. And to the Celtics' credit, those guys have come through for them.
1: No, it's an all-time house money situation, right? It's crazy. There's no downside, and all the pressure is on Philly. I mean, let's be real. Yeah. I mean, that's the flip side. That's the interesting part. You know, as we're talking about this as, you know, Philly should definitely control this series, like, they did not necessarily come into this postseason expecting to have that level of a burden, right? Like, everyone will be disappointed if they don't win this series, whereas as recently as three weeks ago, they were still just like, the up-and-comer, let's see what they can do. You know, they've got to answer all these questions. It's amazing how quickly those narratives shift. Um, you know, at the same time though, I think they have the top level talent to handle it, you know I mean? And they got Embiid some rest here, uh, that series going seven, uh, between Milwaukee and Boston was good. You know, I, I think that helps, uh, it's very helpful for Philly. Yeah. And then they also have a great home court advantage and it's going to be, you know, pretty nuts when they, they get the series back there, um, you know, for three and four. So, I mean, for that standpoint, uh, you know, I, I think Philly should be considered, you know, the clear favorite. Uh, but Boston, you know, the nothing to lose attitude is tough to deal with in the postseason. Uh, I just don't know if I could see like Terry Rozier, you know, gunning down the uh, <laughs> Philadelphia 76ers. Well, just not sure that's going to happen. Me
0: neither. Every Terry Rozier game, I'm just, how is this real? I don't, I am not close. It's it's the opposite of Oladipo. Where like the last two weeks of Oladipo. I'm like, this guy is for real. I am not there yet and I'm not anywhere close to being like Terry Rozier is for real. So every time he c- continues to go off, it uh, breaks my brain all over again.
1: But I mean, this might sound counterintuitive, but you're talking about they should trade Bledsoe this summer. If I'm Boston, I actually think I would cash out on Terry Rozier. It might summer, be time. You're you? right.
0: That's, that's not a bad idea. Yeah.
1: I mean, I feel like his market value, he looks like a starting point guard out there. That's how he's carrying himself. There's a lot of teams that don't have a point guard on their roster. That's as good as he is. And you've got Kyrie coming back, like you mentioned, it's sort of the summer league squad. And, uh, you know, you don't want necessarily to have tension between those two guys at some point if, you know, Rogier starts to feel like, you know, this is his show. And, you know, that could potentially facilitate Boston keeping smart too. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, that, that'd be one way to play it.
0: Um, all right. Well, let's move on to Raptors Wiz, a postmortem. We got one question from Tyler who says it's time Beal for Boogie. For the Pelicans, it gives them a wing who could score with Davis, and then the Pelicans can keep this team together. For the Wizards, the backcourt is broken up, and you pair Wall with Boogie, and Boogie will probably be cheaper than Beal's 23 million, which could allow them to add another player. Um, we'll get to that. We'll get to Tyler's question in a second. I think you, if, if that trade happens they're definitely sending Otto to New Orleans and Otto would be an awesome fit in New Orleans. I don't really want any part of post Achilles injury boogie, uh, but (laughs) that seems like something the wizards would try to do. Uh, I have a couple thoughts on this series. So,
1: well, I hope they start with John Wall's comments after the series because that was the headline. Don't try to bury it. Andrew. No,
0: we're going to get to we're going to get to John Wall's comments afterwards because he came and doubled back. I don't know if you saw in the exit interviews the following day, he doubled back oh, with saw. the bus throwing. Uh but first of all, I do want to say that I'm glad the Raptors won the series because I I like everyone on their team. I like Dwayne Casey. And as some of these games unfolded, it became increasingly clear that it was just going to be amazingly depressing if Toronto had blown this series. And there were times where they were really sort of teetering on the brink. I do think that they kind of dodged a bullet in game five and who knows how game six would have played (laughs) out had they lost. But one thing I also should add, a bunch of Raptors fans got very pissed off on me, uh, pissed off, at me on friday for saying that kyle lowry had been neutralized in this series i wrote that in an article and it was just kind of a Mm. throwaway sentence i should have worded it better but all i meant is that for the middle of this series he didn't really look like a threat at the end of these games and i really wasn't trying to troll toronto or roast the raptors or whatever i if i had been i would have been more careful with my language there I just thought everyone you put, you put, understood that the Raptors had looked pretty flat early on and the Wiz had a real opportunity to win the series, but Toronto fans did not get that memo.
1: Well, look, if you were really trying to troll, you'd put in the termites reference and you would have put it in all caps, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't think that you were necessarily wrong, Andrew. I mean, look, Kyle Lowry's supposed to, you know, coming into this season, people were talking about him as like a top five or six point guard. I mean, he's been all NBA. Yeah multiple times. He wasn't coming off injuries. He'd been, you know, kind of bubble wrapped all season long. You know, John Wall is being thrown back into the mix into all sorts of chaos with his teammates. If Kyle Lowry hadn't been neutralized, if he had actually played as well as the Toronto fans who are yelling at you thought he was playing, that series would have been done in five. Okay. Washington was not good. (laughs) I don't care what anyone (laughs) says. They were not anything close to an eight seed. They weren't functional they're yelling at each other on the bench um they're getting into foul trouble they kind of repeatedly mess, yeah. they didn't have much of a a, ben, uh, a second unit at all and i so i don't know i am just trying to stand no, up for I you here against it. like the crazy <laughs> masses from the north because he was fairly well neutral yeah
0: he was fine he was nothing special not bad i wasn't trying to say that he was bad he just was not a particularly threatening player uh But of course, he looked awesome on Friday night. So I'm happy for him because I love Kyle Lowry. And I'm also happy that open floor MVP Freddie Van Vliet is back in the mix because they are a much better team and more fun to watch when he's out there. So...
1: Yeah, enough I enough know, of this. Enough. Look, we know you love everybody in the NBA. You're being way too charitable <laughs> and nice here. Can you just stick to the script and kill well, the Wizards for all us, right, please? fine. I will
0: move on to the depressing portion of the pod. We'll try to keep this quick. All I can say is that that game six loss was kind of poetic, uh, or at least it's poetic if you're one of the like 17 people who pays close attention to the Wizards and how they're building their team, because... If you go back to 2015 when the Wizards swept Lowry and DeRozan, and then look at the way both teams have responded to that series over the last couple of years, like that should have made it obvious that Toronto deserved to win here and would win here. Like if you look at. Toronto regrouping they've nailed all the moves around the edges of the roster they've used late first round picks on guys like DeLon Wright and uh, Siakam and they found Van Fleet in the second round and then they actually developed their guys like their players get better every single year which is a sign that there's real coaching and development going on and there's like a real culture and that includes Lowry and DeRozan, who have gotten better every single season, particularly DeRozan. Like, he's legitimately improved his game and deserves credit. The Wizards, on the other side, have none of that. They have not used any picks. I mean, I guess Ubre, who they drafted in part to entice Kevin Durant, which is pathetic and depressing. They have very little athleticism off the bench. Like, they were... We 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 talked about the Bucks. The Wizards were legit counting on Ty Lawson to bail them out in the fourth quarter of an elimination game. And three weeks ago, he was in China. Like their other best bench player was out of the league on drug charges last year. They paid Otto Porter 125 million dollars this summer. Played him hurt for two months straight, and then found out that he's got like a blood clot in his leg which I don't even know what's going on because I was afraid to Google the details of that injury. But I guess my point is that this is not how smart teams handle themselves. And then on top of that, again, you contrast DeRozan with someone like John Wall. Like John Wall just hasn't gotten better in, like, in a long time. And so it was just sobering to see it all kind of like play out it was perfect that the Raptors bench were the ones who carried them down the stretch.
1: Yeah, I mean, you started that riff by by saying it was poetic, and I think the name of your poem is just deep, dark envy. I mean, I've never heard someone... <laughs> it's somewhere... not envy. It's not, <laughs> believe me.
0: It's, not, it's more just self-loathing.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, it just the list of teams that you wish the Wizards could mimic is so long, Andrew. I mean, I think you <laughs> want to be the Celtics... <laughs> You want to be the Raptors? You want to be the Sixers? I mean, everyone's got greener grass than what's growing in uh, D.C. right now. Here's my thing on Wall. Okay. So post-game podium, he essentially says, uh, you know, comments that some people take as if he's sort of throwing his teammates under the bus. In other words, he says Wall and Beal need to, uh, you know, continue to work on their games. And then the front office has to go out there and find the pieces to help, uh, make the team better and more complete. And I think there was some kind of pushback from people saying, well, he didn't really throw his teammates under the bus there. He's just saying it's not his job to make the roster better. Right. Uh, maybe he's just putting pressure on the front office to kind of, you know, fill out the team and that's somewhat defensible. But after he made those comments, the next day he goes and has basically his exit interview where he doubles, triples, quadruples (laughs) down, essentially saying they need more athletic bigs. He calls uh, Jan Mahinmi and Gortat basically old, uh, and he sort of singles out other ways that the team can kind of get better. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't really put himself under that deep of a microscope after a season in which, like you're saying, he didn't really take a step forward. I know he referred to himself as as the franchise player, and there's responsibilities on his shoulders. But he was going at length in terms of what others could be doing, and not necessarily, you know, being the most self aware, introspective, uh, responsibility taking leader in the world. Uh, I'm wondering which side of the divide did you come down on? I mean, did Wall go too far, or was what he said correct and defensible? You know, in other words, what he was pointing out as his weaknesses for the organization. Did he point to the right things?
0: I mean, my honest reaction watching that press conference after Game Six—he's in there with the sunglasses, looking like Supermax Janis <laughs> Joplin. Like, he was ridiculous. <laughs> like I just—I'm like, what? I don't know what brand you're going for here, but it's not working. And then he sits there throwing his teammates under the bus. My honest reaction was like, we need to trade this dude. I can't continue living like this uh he's just been so disappointing as a leader and as a player this season the way he carries himself and handles some of this stuff is just really a bummer and again like he hasn't improved his game in five years you compare that to other guards like damian lillard it's gotten much better like now versus 2013 wall credit to how great he was to begin with he's still very good but like he just i don't know so as far as the team i'm not asking for him to like to lash himself for like a a failure this year but i think that it would have been nice to hear him acknowledge like that he played a central role in some of this and he wants to come back and get better and like and he just isn't really wired that way and doesn't necessarily seem to understand that a lot of this is on him, too. And, uh, like, when you're blaming March and Gortot, like, I don't know, man. It's not, it, this isn't a Gortot problem in Washington. So it's, I'm not optimistic about the future with Wall in DC. There are a lot of red flags. And I get it if people, like, feel loyal to him, I I will love him forever for the past eight years. And if he went somewhere else, I'd be rooting like hell for him to succeed. But you compare it to the way the Celtics handed uh, or didn't hand Isaiah Thomas like $200 million and say, look, you've been so good that we're going to just trust you for the next five years. Like they recognize that there were reasons to not do that. And I think that this is now kind of like a fork in the road opportunity the next year or two for the Wizards to recognize that Wall might not make sense for the future.
1: Yeah, it was very interesting. The only person he seemed to have any respect for was Beal. You know, I think he said yeah, that. Yeah, and that hasn't Beale always played been like true with him either. I know, and and that seemed like he was trying to get out ahead of that. You know, because maybe he was worried that they would try to break that up, that that would be the move. And he said, you know, Beal played like an MVP basically when he was hurt. But then, other than that, he didn't seem to have anything nice to say about any of his other teammates. Yeah. And one quote that jumped out to me was how he said that it seemed like a lot of the guys didn't want to be there. They, they didn't want to be in Washington. And, you know, I think he needed to really do a little bit more examination on that point. Is it that the teammates didn't want to be playing for the Wizards? <laughs> or is it that the teammates didn't want to be playing for John Wall's Wizards, yeah. right? Because he has very high usage rate, the ball is in his hands, he plays a very distinct style. He, it's clearly all about him. Uh, And I think that would get tiresome. A lot of those guys have been together for years, whether it's Gortat or whoever else. I would understand if they were just sort of like, you know what? You know, Wall's not the guy who's going to take us over the hump here. He wants everything to be on his terms. I don't want to play on his terms. That doesn't mean those guys are checked out, that they don't want to be, you know, playing for a playoff team necessarily. Uh, That just means that the chemistry isn't right. And again, that goes back to Wall kind of taking ownership of some of that. I didn't see the Wizards quitting out there. And that seemed right. to be what he was implying. Uh, it seemed to me like they had, you know, a lot of different guys step up at various moments. You mentioned Mike Scott. I mean, I thought he had a really nice series. And, uh, you know, Lawson even in, you know, <laughs> coming straight off the flight into the playoffs, like, you know, good for him. I mean, he he played fine. But uh, <laughs> I just didn't think he was diagnosing things. Like Dr. Wall Not was reading great. from the wrong me- <laughs> medical book. You know what I mean?
0: Exactly. And for me... another kind of red flag is to praise Beal as much as he did and look at Beal as a peer. And he has never looked at Otto in that same way. And look, Otto Porter's not like a world beater, but he is really good. And he's sort of like a rich man's Joe Ingles. And for Wall to just completely disregard him speaks to how kind of short-sighted some of his assessments can be and uh i like i don't know what the hell he's talking about it was very funny with the exit interviews you had like every other wizard come through there and be like yeah we're fine like we we need to get better we know like this summer there could be some changes but we're gonna come back and play hard we all care about each other and then wall comes in it just blasts everybody it was like great this has been an awesome year thanks john <laughs> this is the exactly yeah, no. what you want to see after you it's, hand someone 200 million dollars
1: no, I mean Wall treats Porter like Trump treats Michael Michael Cohen. You know, I mean he's the <laughs> he's the whipping boy. I mean it's it's pretty rough. And like he said in the past, like you know, real max guys have the ball in their hands. You know, and you know, he's kind of questioned whether Porter's even worth this contract. It's, it's I think tough. indirectly. I mean that doesn't feel great if you're a, a teammate and, you, and you're expected to go to war for a guy. I mean I think. Uh, you know, Wall's got to be more careful with what he says. And I just don't think he cares. You know, I think he views himself as a guy who could just say whatever he wants. He doesn't understand the implications of his words. And I think, uh, you know, that's a tough spot to be in. And I think there's a real backlash here, Andrew. I don't think it's just you who's sort of like at the end of the rope with this. And I don't know if you saw Candace Buckner's tweet. I mean, she said that her story about John Wall's exit interview generated more email than anything else she's written about the wizards uh since she got to the washington post i mean that is a damning indictment is it not
0: uh, yeah i don't know i don't know what the temperature is uh, beyond me and like a couple close friends um because I, I, a lot of wizards writers and wizards bloggers are still very much like pro wall like let's make it work with him let's not blow up like the parts of this the team that is working uh But to me, Wall's not working anymore. And it's not going to get better from here. Um, But who knows? That could change. But uh, for now, that's enough depressing Wizards talk. Let's finish it off with a couple mailbag questions here. We got some follow-up to the purpose versus a purpose debate from last week's podcast. Uh, And I know you wanted to respond. So... First, a question or a comment from Open Apostrophe, who says, Andrew, you're right that playing with purpose versus a purpose is rhetorical flourish without clear meaning. How is Stop Ricky Rubio at all cost' not textbook playing with a purpose? Feels like BG needs a better metaphor for misdirected effort. And then James says, mm. Andrew's contention that Ben's Westbrook purpose versus a purpose aphorism, is nonsense, is clearly untrue. I, for one, completely understand it. So I'm going to cede the floor to you here a little bit nervously, and I will let you explain.
1: Well, first of all, Andrew, are you going to be intellectually honest this time? Or are you going to sort of play willfully ignorant just for the <laughs> LOLs? All
0: right. Can I just say, I understand exactly what you're talking about. My only point and my only objection is that you sort of pepper it into conversation as if it's immutable law that everyone understands and i couldn't help but give you some shit for it that's all i had I, that's i just had i couldn't resist
1: look i understand i'm walking around here like john wooden's pyramid of success in human form <laughs> i understand that's annoying and obnoxious but i i happen to believe this one is okay. true I want to just explain something. Uh, and for open apostrophe, I mean, it's possible that either he or some other listeners didn't hear the original explanation last fall when I kind of broke it down. What I'm saying, playing with a purpose, I'm not saying that you have a reason to what you're doing, which is I'm going to go out there and stop Ricky. I'm talking about having a greater meaning to your play, right? Like, for example, we're using a purpose here as like a purpose driven life. Andrew, <laughs> why are you and I on earth? Uh, what are we trying to accomplish, right? We're looking for meaning here. And so saying, you know, quote, unquote, I'm going to shut that bleep down, talking about Ricky Rubio, does not qualify as a greater meaning in life. You know, are you trying to make your community better? Are you trying to make people laugh? Are you trying to educate the masses? Are you trying to inspire? That's what we're talking about here when we say play with <laughs> a purpose. And just to illustrate this, Andrew, I want you to imagine a time travel conversation between like Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, and Russell Westbrook, Uh right? MLK is the first to pipe up, and they're going to be discussing, you know, the important things about life. And MLK starts off, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And then Westbrook just jumps in, and he's like, I'm going to shut that bleep down. I guarantee it, right? (laughs) Lincoln counters four score and seven years ago. And Westbrook's like, nah, man, nah, scratch that. I'm going to shut that bleep down. I guarantee you. All of this is why I was
0: nervous, for the record.
1: So we know that this does not qualify as playing with a purpose because Westbrook did not succeed in producing his desired outcome. He did, in fact, rather, he produced numerous unintended consequences. And worst of all, he furthered an unhealthy dynamic in Oklahoma City. And I want to say this. You can't spell... Stockholm Syndrome without OKC. And look no further than Paul George. Andrew, last playoffs, Paul George was out there on the court trying to film a Gatorade commercial. He was demanding all of the shots. This year, season on the line, he stands and watches Westbrook shoot 43 times. That's more than any other active player has taken in a playoff game. And afterwards, Paul George apologizes for the shots that he took, saying that he should have let Westbrook take them instead. Does that sound like a healthy balance? Does that sound like teammate empowerment? Does that sound like the old cliche, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts? No, it doesn't. It sounds like one guy doing his thing with blinders on, playing with purpose, playing hard, you know, doing his best to get off all those shots, but not creating a healthy dynamic, not playing with a deeper meaning. And here's the thing, Andrew. Uh We have counterexamples of teams that play with a purpose. Look no further than Golden State, right? They say, let's kindle the joy, right? Let's play, make basketball fun for everyone. Strength in numbers. Every single person counts. Here's another one for you. San Antonio, their motto has been pounding the rock. Now, when they say that, they don't mean dribble seven times in isolation and then jack up a 32% contested three-pointer. That's not what they mean by pounding the rock, Andrew. What they mean is keep chiseling away year after year if necessary because perseverance, persistence, and hard work will eventually pay off with success. That is how you play with a purpose. And I think for Westbrook, you know, the challenge is clear. Right now, the way he plays, it's sound and fury, Signifying nothing. Does he want to continue to be Macbeth on the court, or does he want to take the next step, acknowledge his own limitations, his own short sightedness, and find a real reason uh, and produce a method to the madness? Or is he going to be happy with this "why not" lifestyle, Andrew? If it's, your purpose why not lifestyle, there,
0: oh my God, I've rolled my eyes so hard <laughs> for the last three minutes. You're killing me. Please finish if up. If your soon. purpose
1: <laughs> is why not. you're going to be telling yourself and asking yourself what happened (sighs) at the end of it. And I just want to say this, Andrew, was it any surprise to you that after everything, all the dust settled, Westbrook went out shooting 43 times, blaming and screaming at the fans uh not having much help from his teammates and he went out early did any of that surprise you did he learn anything
0: no but we've been over this <laughs> we don't we don't need to discuss the Westbrook conundrum all over again i will say that uh a couple things to to bring us to a more coherent place uh <laughs> <laughs> that was coherent i'm telling you russell westbrook definitely brings 100 percent energy in every game does not always channel that energy in the most productive way and i think that's what you're trying to say with your purpose versus a purpose thing and i appreciate your defense of it you kind of lost me with the mlk illusion and the hypothetical conversation with westbrook but uh i appreciate it look you definitely play with a purpose and I love you for it. So thank you and uh go jazz. Goodbye Russell Westbrook. I don't have any more energy for these arguments uh because it's Sunday <laughs> night, but look, the playoffs have been great. So I have no complaints.
1: Telling me that I play with a purpose is the single nicest thing you've ever <laughs> said to me or you could ever say about anyone. It's the highest compliment and I really appreciate it, Andrew. I think you play with a purpose too or because you bring joy. <laughs> all day, every day, and that's more than we could say for some NBA superstars. All right, Andrew, if anyone else wants to yell at uh, me or you about any of these topics, please send in your emails to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail.com at gmail.com remember we'll take questions on the playoffs the teams that get eliminated the lottery is coming up not that in the uh, not too distant future uh you know any of these players who are having you know career crises you know carmelo anthony john Mm -hmm. wall bring on your questions comments and concerns and also andrew use your iphone with a purpose okay (laughs) help us out make our lives better by going to uh the apple podcast app Search open floor. Two words, easy to spell. Scroll down, find rate and review, uh, tap five stars. We really, really appreciate it. It helps us spread the word. Hey, Andrew, until later this week, i talk. All right, talk man, to you. take it easy.
0: Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.